0: Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and this time my interview guest is former Manchester United, Hearts and Hibs player and now media pundit Michael Stewart. The Nutmeg podcast is sponsored by Orion, Scotland's sports performance centre. It lands every fortnight. Please subscribe, leave a review and give us some stars on the Apple Podcasts app. We stand, too, on the elegant shoulders of our print offering. Please see nutmegmagazine.co.uk to find out more and enjoy some sample articles. Enough of that. Here's the podcast. Q tape. So what about, then, the leaving of Hearts and
1: the last couple of years and eventually the decision to retire? So, uh, when it got to the the end, I... I got to that stage now where, you know, before there had been a number of other times where I'd thought about, like, you know, leaving, and I was like, I didn't want to leave Edinburgh, I didn't want to leave Scotland, whereas this time it was like, I wanted to, I wanted to go abroad, and when I was leaving Hearts, it was uh, Kenny Moyes, David Moyes' brother, had come to me and said, look, Celtic, again, could be interested, Neil Lennon was interim manager, he was like, if he gets the job, that could, that could happen. Uh, but I was already set in my mind I was like I just wanted to leave Scotland now career wise wrong choice again but in terms of how I uh, you know felt and psychologically I wanted to go abroad there was a couple of sort of German things that were in the pipeline you know, and that was where I wanted to, to go really but the difficulty was when the Turkish stuff was started to the ball rolling Um the 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 money in Turkey is if you negotiate it net, whereas in uh, Germany you're effectively talking about half because you're paying close to fifty percent uh, tax, and the offer in Turkey was a concrete offer, whereas the stuff in Germany was again it was you know, things that were it was starting to negotiate and the ball was rolling, and and that type of thing. And I just thought, right, well, do you know what, I'll go and speak to the, the, the Turkish club, uh, Gençlıbile. And it was a, a club that were, at that point, they were sort of always around the Europa League type thing. So you had, the, obviously, the big, big clubs um, in Istanbul, you know, Bursa Spor were big at that time as well. And then Gençlıbile were in that group underneath, so like sixth, seventh, eighth of the table type of stuff. So it was a, you know, it was a good operation. But the reason that it was attractive was because they were a stable club. And obviously a lot of the chat in Turkey was in terms of like not paying and all those things. They had a really good reputation. The chairman, Elan Javjav, was a bit of a godfather within Turkish football. He was mates with the president, Erdogan, um, which is obviously nothing to write home about. But he was was an imposing figure. Um, And he had a good reputation. So when I went to speak to them and saw them, you know, I I had a, a fairly... Good feeling about it. Um, the problem was when I when I signed a uh, um, week before the start of the season, I, I had a I needed an operation on my ankle, and then that was when it all broke down. Because to them, effectively, that's like you know, well, we didn't we didn't agree to that. and <laughs> It's like well, unfortunately, the contract doesn't say if I'm injured, you don't pay me. Um, so there was a contractual dispute. And there was a problem, and um, I. I eventually in the January when I was back fit um, I decided that they had reneged they weren't paying they'd said that they would pay once I got back for the second half of the season they then came back and said we're well, no paying the first half of the season and I was just like look that's just completely unacceptable so they were like well fine you've yeah, got three choices uh, yeah either." I, I mean I, I remember it was it was ridiculous flew out to um Antalya, the winter training camp down in the south of Turkey and the, the translator came and picked me up from the airport He's he said oh brilliant Michael great you're here um, we've got the, the, the boarder at the hotel waiting to, to meet you and I was like alright great so I went up to the room he came up and got me he says oh the, the boarder downstairs they want to you know to, to welcome you back and we, we need to talk about things I was like yeah so we went down, and I'm expecting just to you know sorted we're going to pay you for the, the last five months now and um, and went down so they're all and they're all coming up and cuddles and you know cultural kisses and stuff like that great to see you. I mean they're a very warm and welcoming nation but when it comes to you know business and money that's when I found it I, I didn't like the way they, they did things Um, and they just basically started saying that well we're not going to pay for the first half of the season uh, it's great that you're back and you can show us that you deserve to get paid for the second half of the season so I was just like I says no chance I says, were you
0: representing yourself at this time I, just because the, the, the,
1: the, 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 the agent that had done the deal was an Austrian boy German German uh, speaking Austrian guy he uh, they were giving him the around. so he was not he didn't know where it was going on and I, I was just coming back to, to start training I didn't know this was you know about to happen and then when I sat down, so it wasn't as if it was a negotiation, it was a, it was a general sort of chat and then they've hit me with that and I was just like, that's not acceptable. And they went, right, well, you've got three options. You can uh, cancel the contract. It's not cancel. You can go and speak to uh, Elan Jav and cancel the contract. I was like, I'm not just going to cancel the contract. It says when you're due me, like, you know, the, the, the all my money. It says, well, you can accept the offer and basically come back and train and play the second half of the season and forget about the first half. Or you can go to FIFA. So I said, I was just like, well, well I'm not taking the first. I said, because there's no way I'm cancelling the contract when you're due me my, my money. I said, the second one, I'm not accepting that. says, because what happens if first game after the break, I break my leg and I miss the second half of the season and you don't pay me because you've done it before and set the precedent? I said, so I'm not doing that. I will take you to FIFA. And a lot of the times these places, they obviously, because, again, ignorance is bliss. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but these things are so drawn out. They're just time-consuming. They're a pain in the backside. And inevitably, from the club's perspective, they view it that, well, you'll go somewhere else and whatever you earn, they did not have to pay you. It's mitigated against it. Um, so I cancelled the contract. It was the middle of January. I came back here. I was just... I, I kept myself fit, so I went with, to Elvis with Falkirk just to, to train, to keep fit for like a week or so, and then I had a few things lined up, but I thought right, I want to make sure I'm fit before I go. Last day of the transfer window, um, Blackpool in the Premier League, Ian Holloway said come down. So I drove down to Blackpool, last day of the transfer window, it was when Charlie Adam was maybe signing for Liverpool. I don't think it did happen. I think it happened in the summer eventually. But anyway, I went to speak to uh, Ian Holloway and great chat, great character. Enjoyed it in the English Premier League and I was thinking like, that's, you know, that's a good chance. Um, finished the conversation with him and he was like, look, go next door, speak to the chairman. He says, but I'll just tell you right now. He's a fucking arsehole. And he says, and he'll try and shaft you. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? He went, I'm just telling you. So I was like, all right, okay. So... Went through to speak to uh, Carol Oyston, was it? Went through to speak to him, and Jesus mm-hmm. sakes, it was just embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Um, the thing, I mean, look, it's all relative. I'm talking about, you know, the offer, in relative terms to the normal man in the street, was good, but in football, in terms for an English Premier League club, it was, I think it was, it was like a quarter of what I was earning at Hearts, and I was like that's just nonsense you know I'm thinking he's this isn't serious so I came away from it and I just thought to myself and I, so remembering I wasn't bound by the the end of the window so I thought I'll, I'm not going to sign it right now because I didn't need to but then they had to announce their squads you know they had to hand their squads and so it was a few days later so I thought I'm not going to do this right now and I knew that Leeds were interested so I'm thinking Leeds were in the playoffs at the time much bigger club and it would be a better offer <clears throat> so I came away and I thought stuff that and I went and Lindsay went look because you've not played for the first half of the season we just want to make sure that your ankle's alright do the test come down we've got a uh, bounce game against New York that like the first thing that I'd done so I was like aye fine because I felt good went down so again like I was saying to you before you know when things have gone well played the game against York felt great and I knew myself that like that was good so went in and trained the rest of the week and then Simon Grayson was the manager basically they said can you come down next week again just because the manager the last few days is obviously looking towards the, the, the game that they've got at the weekend There, uh, come down next week and you know we'll, we'll try and sort stuff out and I was like ah, fine because again, neither are great and the chat was, they said look, we need two midfielders um, and think you can do a job for us and I was like well, aye. So I could see us, and I could see an, a space in the team. I'm thinking, like I said to you before, better club, chance of going up. Whereas I'm thinking Blackpool are going to go down, and a better offer. So I was, I was happy with that. And there was a few other Championship clubs that were asking, like you know, what are you doing or whatever. And I says, Oh, I'm at Leeds. You know, looks like I'm going to, you know, sign here. And went back down the next week. And just to rewind it, the first day I went into Leeds, Mervin Day was the chief scout. Really nice guy. Really nice guy. So I'm in the training ground. I'm up in the canteen and Mervyn's, uh standing there and we're sit- sorry, sitting there and we're having a coffee. And then in walks this guy called Gwyn Williams who, I didn't know who he was, but Mervyn's like, said, oh Gwyn, over you come. I, need- I want to introduce you to, to-, to Michael. And hey. he looks at me like, inquisitively, and shakes my hand and goes, Michael. Oh, Stur- oh Michael Stuart, right. Aye, aye. But where, where, where are you? And, you know, trying to make you feel like really insignificant. So I just batted it off and I just thought to myself, what a fucking prick. And then I was like, I didn't know who the guy is anyway. So I just, like, was, you know, ignoring it. And then, over the next few weeks I knew quite a few of the, the, the Leeds boys anyway as well like Snod uh, Ro- uh, Snoddy was there Robert Snodgrass Patrick Cusnarbo who had been at Hearts with me Ross McCormack so a really good group of boys great loved it manager was wanting to sign me so I'm thinking yeah matter of time and then I'm chatting to Paddy and I was I'd mentioned to him about like you know this Gwynn incident and he went yeah, you want you want to stick in with him and I was like how? he went he's Ken Bates man and I was like all right, all right, but then I'm thinking that's fine. Like, I'm all right. The manager wants wants me to sign, so this dragged on, and it, like at the end of the week, it was always like, "Oh, can you come down?" Here? and it was dragging on, and dragging on. I ended up being there about three weeks. I turned down, uh, I think Hull were one of the clubs that had been asking at the time. There was some, uh, maybe one of the Sheffield clubs or something I can't remember. There was a couple of other good Championship clubs because I thought I'm going to Leeds. And at the end of it, like, I'd, it was a Tuesday, I remember, and they were off on the Wednesday, and I'd said, look, this is this is embarrassing. Like, what's going on? So I said, I'm going back up the road, because they were off on the Wednesday. I said, you know where I am. So the next day, I got a phone call um, from one of the assistants and just said like, Michael, I'm really, really sorry, but we can't do anything. And I was just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. So what had happened was that um, because one of the boys had eventually told me was that Gwyn Williams had never wanted me to come in in the first place and he was basically telling Ken Bates not to do the deal. So I'd wasted a lot of time there. It was now, you know, effectively March and I hadn't played all season. And the championship clubs that were obviously I'd been asking before, had gone away and got somebody else in. So I needed to play and Charlton had been asking all the time but it was League One and I was like I didn't want I'm not going to play in League One but it got to this march now and I was like well I need to I need to do something so I thought I'll go down I knew quite a few folk down in London anyway so I ended up staying with uh, friends down there and I uh, enjoyed it the stuff away from you know football and there was a lot there was good people there um, and uh Chris Pell was the manager Alex Dyer who's obviously up here now with uh, Kilmarnock was one of the, the assistants so they were good people but the football was dire you know And so it was. I just felt like I'll go and play for a few months it was a good club Charlton enjoyed it you know it was a good club um, and aye uh, it, it was just at a stage where at the end of it I was like the football was dire it was league one it was it was a, just it wasn't enjoyable that side of it so I they, they were desperate for me to stay the next day and year and I you know had they been in the championship I would have done it in a you know, heartbeat but I wasn't wanting to play league one football um, and I came back up the road and there was you know you're then talking about like a wee period of time where I hadn't played a lot I'd only played like a few months And I was just thinking about what we're going to do. So the start of the next season, um, there was quite a few things that were coming about, potentially going to happen. But then every time we got to the stage where there was like, you know, waiting for the next thing, it would just drift away and nothing was happening. So at first I didn't really think much of it. I didn't really think anything about it. But then after a while you start thinking like, "Son's not right. And then in the October, because I was like, I'm not, I'm not like going to pursue, you know, something that I didn't want to do. Um, And in this, sorry, in that period of time as well, this sort of the random weird part about it as well, there was things that were on the back burner, things that were, you know, potentially getting mentioned, and then they would just disappear. And I was obviously in Edinburgh, I was here, this is where I'm from. And I was... I'd walked around the corner from my house at the West End and I bumped into Vlad like I mean, the most random thing ever I bumped into Vlad at the Sheraton Hotel just outside though I bumped into him and it was again it was like oh how are you what's going on da, da, da. and we just got chatting a little bit and then he said look would you come back and at that stage I was thinking like Pfft. well to get started again I'm at home well aye I, yeah I might so he was like, I'll get Sergey to contact you this afternoon. So his sort of right-hand man, Sergei, contacts me later on. Um, and I was thinking, right, you know what? I'll do this. Get started again. And um, then it was at the stage though where Vlad was just starting to take a bit more of a back step. He was drifting away. Um, and the reason he was here was because he was just announcing uh, Paul Sergio was the manager. So. Paulo Sergio came in. And there was a few people at the, at the club at Hearts who didn't want, you know, people behind the scenes that I didn't see eye to eye to, and they didn't want me back. So when Paulo Sergio came in, they were basically saying no, no, no. So because Vlad was taking a step back and he wasn't really getting involved before, he would have just done it irrespective. Things were starting to drift along, and Sergio was like, you know, oh yeah, it's fine. It'll get done. It'll get done in the meantime I'm obviously looking at other stuff as well and then it just drifted away and it never happened where, so before it would have just been done whereas this time it just drifted away so I ended up going out to uh, Germany to Ingolstadt which is where Audi's headquarters are just south of Munich trained it there um, they were in the, the Bundesliga 2 and loved it great I said come out next week do a medical and we'll a so I was like brilliant going to go in Germany championship level really good uh, went back out did the medical at the Müller-Wulfahrt clinic so that's the Munich uh, the German doctor that's very famous so very intense um, and then came back and they were like oh we're not comfortable with your ankle so I was like look I got the surgeon that had done it who was the top surgeon down in London to contact them and said look if you look at the scan it's not going to look but you've got to like anything you've had an operation but clinically it's fine so anyway that fell through on the back of that it's coming towards like you know November time and it's just like not a time of year where things can get done it's outside the window and you know psychologically I'm just like I'm fed up um, and then you know there's um, a couple of like Charlton were still sort of asking Sheffield United who were in League One as well and I'm just like like, I didn't want to go and play it so it got to like the turn of the year and I was like I need to do something so I went down to Sheffield United and just to keep in mind again there's so many things I'm talking about the bottom. Of the, there was a I think West Brom who were the bottom of the Premier League had perhaps noted an interest and then championship clubs and they're all just like drifting and falling and then Sheffield United they went down so, went down, and again, you know when things are going well and fine. So it did cruise through, done well, brilliant, came at the end of the week, and uh, Chris Morgan, the uh, former centre-half, who, when you talk about centre-halves that uh, are hard as nails, but actually want to play some good football, he was moving into coaching, and I, I really, really liked him, he was a good guy. He was doing a training session with the boys who weren't playing in the game on the Saturday and he says, like, come in and you do it, you know, the next day, on the Saturday morning. But then I got word from the manager, like, oh, it's fine, just go up the road. So there was, like, this conflicting message of, like, I am I down, And then Chris was like, oh, I'll see you next week. So then when I was back up the road, the guy that was trying to, like, do the deal phoned me up and says, oh, they're, they're not going to do anything. And I was like... I says that is absolute nonsense i was like there is something's something is not right here and then um, an agent that i'd known from when i was doing it to uh, man united david healy's agent really nice guy um, Stephen steven he phoned me up and was like what's going on and i, I basically like you know said well look this has happened he went like give me a couple of weeks he says i'll get a call for you like this is ridiculous So anyway, he phoned me back about 10 days later. He went, look, I'll be honest with you, Michael. He says, "Um, uh," says, there's a bit of a problem. And I was like, what? He went, I've now heard from two different people. He says that there's somebody in a significant position in Scottish football that's telling people down south that you're an alcoholic. And I was like, what? And he went... And then it just made perfect sense. That... All these things that had been happening, you know, in terms of coming to you know a position where you're expecting it to go to the next stage in terms of like let's get it together, it was like it would just drift away, and it was this vicious, vicious, you know, smear. That it's the type of thing when you hear that you just like well, you don't you don't investigate it further to try and find out you know the details. You just go oh Christ, get away from there. And this was clearly what had been going on. So. You can imagine, psychologically, I was all over the place. I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. Like, what on earth am I going to do? So, it, it got to the position where it was at the end of, It was coming towards the end of the season anyway, and I was like, I'm just writing this season off. And then I got in touch with the gaffer, because I thought, I need to... It's not something I'm comfortable with doing, but this is, like, serious. Like, this is... I don't know how I'm going to... So, I spoke to him, and I told him what, what was going on. And then he'd said, well, just... He initially said, go and speak to the press and, you know, flush it out. And I was like, well, I didn't really know anybody down south. He thought I was talking about, like, just up in Scotland. And he was like, all right. He says, well, not to anybody. He says, I'll sort it out down here. He says, I'll speak to, you know, a few people and, and write and put the, the record straight. So the next pre-season, I've no played for a year. I've no played a lot for the last two years because I've only played a couple of months that season with Charlton then the whole next year I've no played and I'm now over 30 so it's no ideal but um, the next pre-season Steve Bruce had gone into Hull and um, I went in to Hull. Now I'm you know I'm never sure how it came about with regards to it. There was people that obviously were working for me that knew Steve that spoke to him. And I'd imagine Steve obviously then spoke to the gaffer, and the gaffer was like, absolutely fine, rather than the gaffer instigating the whole thing. But I went in, and again, I'll go back to the point, you know when things are going well. And it was going really well there. I went in the first couple of days, and Steve just basically said, like, look, he said, you know, I really like what I see. He says, my um, concern though, he says, I'll be honest with you, is you're over 30 now. You've not played a great deal in the last couple of years. The championship is like, you know, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday. There's a lot of games. He says, I can't go to the chairman and do a deal if you're picking up injuries. He said, So he says, let's agree on this. He says, Are you happy to stay doing here as long as it takes to get fully fit? He says, And then we'll look to, you know, potentially do something. So I was like, Absolutely. Like, yeah. I was staying with my mate um, <clears throat> in Weatherby <laughs> and travelling through, you know, quiet motorway through to, to Hull, 40 minutes in the morning back. I was able to jump on the train in York, get up to Edinburgh every half an hour. So it was it was perfect. It was a good club, good team, good manager trying to get up to the English Premier League. So I thought, this is absolutely perfect. Um, so, couple, you know, after about a few weeks, it was you know, the, there was a lot of good signs and I remember I think we'd been in the office speaking to him and he was like, Look, you know, this is going well. We were just in training and I tweaked my groin. And it was like, oh, that's not great, but it's not like it's not terminal. I came back quite quick. I was only out for about a week. I came back, it was fine. You know, at that point I'd I'd been done I'd been down there for like about three months. It was like crazy. You know, when I came back up the road you're talking about like the well, it was probably almost November mm. Aye, August September, October almost like the, uh, in the November and um, I just after everything that happened over the you know the last week well I just my head was all over the place, didn't know what I was wanting to do, and my message was just like Look, didn't he make any snap decisions wait until after the new year, enjoy Christmas and everything the, with the family and just try and switch off. So I thought, right, okay. So I'd done that. It got to the new year and I think I had I'd, I'd switched off. I think I had effectively... Because the previous like, two or three years, it hadn't, hadn't been like I was in a club playing. So it was almost like this sort of drifting away from the game. Um, and it came to January and I, was, I felt like I had to make a decision. I had to take back some sort of control because it was waiting on others doing something for me. And the only thing that I knew that I that I was certain of was that I wanted to be in Edinburgh. That was it. I didn't, know, you know, I didn't want to be down south somewhere that was geographically too far away for me to get back up the road. Often the football was potentially not going to be the level or the standard or the actual quality that I wanted, and relatively the money would be less than what I'd been doing before. So I just thought to myself, the only thing I know for certain is I want to be in Edinburgh, and I didn't want to play. Up the road anymore, so I just that was it. I just stopped. Like it, it felt quite sort of, you know, uh, surgical in the end. But it was a it was a slow build up to it, and it felt from that moment on. And this is very much with you know the the the, the power of hindsight and the benefit of hindsight is that it was the best thing that I did because. It, I, I gained a little bit of like you know control back, and it's the turn of the year, and the you know the, the the punditry stuff just sort of happened because turn of the year, derby games at New Year, and uh, st- asking you know asked it to do a couple, and then it just snowballed quite quickly from there. Michael
0: Stewart, the hero of the League Cup from the spot for Hearts. And he's the hero again this afternoon. His fourth penalty of the season, five goals now for Hart's top scorer, and he brings Hearts level. Dispatched it well.
1: Um, I think I ended up doing uh, Sky, doing the Edinburgh derby, I think, um, and then doing radio. And then within a couple of weeks, it was like you know asking to do some more radio, and then some TV, and then the son had asked me would I want to do or you know. Um, after a, a month or two just to do like a column about everything in general and then at the end of that column it was like would you want to do a column next season? I was like aye. So it just snowballed mm. pretty quickly um, and then probably about I don't know maybe a couple of seasons of doing that and obviously then doing more um, and, and doing it m- more frequently it, it got to a stage where I was like ah you know I enjoy this and and you know <laughs> The thing just continues to evolve and become bigger and bigger. Um, but I would probably say after a couple of years, it was probably when I thought to myself, like, well, there is something to actually build upon here. Whereas before, I was doing it to just remain active, to you know, actually keep my brain engaged. Um, and then after a couple of years, it probably got to this stage where I was like, you know what, there's a nice balance here. I've got all the time to spend with my young family, I'm, you know i enjoy being involved in the game and talking about the game we all we all love the game, so then was like I'm quite fortunate that I've got a position to talk about the game and and you know uh, be passionate about it, but I'm not plugged in twenty four seven I can switch off um so that that balance was quite attractive um and you know fast forward to today where you know it's it's <laughs> it's continued to sort of um, evolve and, and, and snowball to you know quite a a grand scale now. Um, I'm very fortunate to have like the platform that I've got now, and I'm I'm opinionated. It's not a conscious thing; it's a subconscious thing that um, you know it's gut instinct.
0: Have you always been like that? It, it reminds me a bit of some things you told me about when you were a player, speaking mm. up but not always being followed or backed
1: up. Yeah, definitely. It is. It's an instinctive thing and, and a lot of, you know, obviously within the footballing context it was, you know, when I was playing a lot of people would have viewed it as being disruptive but it was done with the right intentions. It was because, you know, seeing things that I didn't think were right perhaps there's a different way to do it but that was just, it was my way. It wasn't done, you know, in an aggressive fashion. It wasn't done to create angst or, you know, Division. It was done to, you know, try and get, you know, people to recognise that this isn't right. But you know, a lot of people again who are in power don't like, don't like that. And when you're talking about within a confined space, then, you know, in hindsight, that's why a lot of people don't put their head above a parapet because there's repercussions. Whereas now, you know, I'm sort of involved in things, but I'm outside the, you know, the, the bubble. Um, that instinct still, you know, comes to the fore. Yeah. So I mean, yes, it is who I am, but it's done with the best intentions. It's not done for any other reason than to try and progress things forward. That's the serious
0: side of talking about the game, which you've done so well for the last few years. What do you enjoy? Is it the Saturday routine in front of the screens watching games? Is it
1: what is it? I think like any fan, you enjoy talking about football. So you know whether it's um, going to the game going to a live game and, and, you know, and talking about things as they unfold and and trying to give a little bit of insight into, you know, what's happening, how would you maybe change it, what needs to happen, um, those sorts of things that give you a wee sort of snippet of, of, you know, live interaction in the game. I enjoy that side of things. Um, To, you know, retrospective... uh, looking back and, and analysing the game in a, great, a bit more detail on like a Sunday and you know looking at the games and analysing and <clears throat> picking up on themes that you've maybe seen from the day before to then dive a wee bit deeper um, I enjoy all those sorts of aspects of it to you know on a Monday night on the radio talking about you know other aspects of the game um, whether you know obviously it doesn't specifically always um Stick to you know tactical sides or it, there's a, a wide spectrum of things um with regard to the game that we talk about on a, on a monday night on the radio so i enjoy all sort of aspects of it to because again it sort of it, it fits if it, it sort of sits quite comfortable with you know who i am as a, as a character um I've got interests across the, the spectrum, not just in football, but obviously outside football as well. So um, I enjoy what I'm doing now because it's not pigeonholed to just you know one aspect of it. It's it's quite a broad spectrum of things. Um, I wouldn't say that there's one aspect more than the other that I enjoy. I enjoy it all because of the variety of it.
0: Were you a very analytical player? Were you wanting to say something at half-time if you felt someone wasn't dropping deep enough or whatever it
1: may have been? i- again, not just so much half time, even on the park, and I, and I know that, like you know, that I, I was conscious and aware of it. You know, to to a lot of people, it was, um, they they felt, or even punters getting annoyed at you, you know me trying to do stuff on the pitch, but that's just you know it was the way it was. Um, I just I saw the game. I I felt as if I knew you know the game, and and. It wasn't, you know, frustration at others. I was, a lot of times, frustration at myself, you know, and that was one of the big problems. Too critical, getting annoyed with myself, you know, wanting perfection, when perfection, which is, which in itself is not a bad thing, but when it becomes, you know, overly critical, it can be a, a problem. So, yeah, I was... Not that I would go, you know, I wouldn't go back afterwards and sit and analyse a game to, to death. Um, it was more just things as they were playing out, and then I would see it in my mind afterwards, knowing certain things that had happened. And so yeah, I mean, I was always, I wasn't somebody that just basically like, you know, just lived in a bubble and played football and, and that was it. It was, it was always there, I was always thinking about the game, thinking about aspects of the game, thinking about, you know, tactics and how things played out.
0: Yeah, I've always been like that. Do footballers lay awake after night games? Because I'm
1: always, as a fan, whether it's the floodlights or what, yeah. seem to be awake till one or two. I think everybody's different, but um, I would say the majority of, uh, of players, it's difficult to you know have that adrenaline running around your body mm. and then to just sort of switch off... Um, it's I which is quite a strange one because obviously your body's tired, but your mind at times can just still be going like racing. Um, so, I I think everybody's different, but um, and and to certain times it would be worse than others. You know, like sometimes I'd be fine, other times it would just be like can't sleep, I'm knackered, but I can't sleep, um, and that sometimes can be the same. You know, now and it'll, I would imagine it'll be exactly the same for coaches and managers as well, where. You know, your their uh, their mind is just going over and over and over and over about stuff um, to the to the extent where you are shattered. But mm-hmm. you know, when your mind's still racing, it's difficult to, to go to sleep. And obviously, that's magnified when it's a when it's a night game. And the period between the end of the game and going to sleep is like even smaller. So, it, uh, yeah. And as you said, for you know, for fans as well, it may well be the same
0: promoting in for Stewart! Yeah! goodness me that is a beauty stewart with an absolute cracker for himself
1: and they have the lead well that's why we watch football isn't it special moments like that what can you say about it? I think to win any game ball draw to him from Dean Shields look at the body shape absolutely in control from the minute I left this field.
0: With the punditry and pundits in general and for you specifically, is there a frustrated coach's voice in there somewhere?
1: I think for a lot of a lot of guys, yeah, there's a you know, there's a sort of itch and a scratch that they, you know, perhaps are wanting to do coaching and management <clears throat> and Mines isn't a frustrated, you know, coach or manager. As I said before, I enjoy doing all these things, but um, I don't know whether it's because the, the the sort of the industry or the role as a as a, as a pundit is, is growing. I don't know whether it's that or it's just down to you know the individuals. But I don't have that scratch. I don't have that itch. Again, it comes back to you know the the balance of the my life. Um, You know, if you're into management and coaching, it's 24-7. Very difficult to to switch off. Very difficult to to find that time for for other things. Um, And I've got a broad spectrum of interests outside of football that, you know, if you were involved in management and coaching, it's difficult to be able to to still be plugged into those things. So... um, yeah, for a lot of guys, I mean, you look at obviously like we uh, we Neil McCann's a perfect example of where Neil was, you know, had a prominent position as a pundit, but he always wanted to to get involved in the coaching and management. Then went and got involved at, at Dundee, um, and many other sort of guys that you'll hear on the radio or you might see on the telly who have perhaps you know delved in, came out back in it's it's. Um, it's, it's there for everybody to see, but you know nowadays I don't know whether it's you know it's moved on to being a bit more of a uh, separate industry where there's guys that um, I suppose Andy Gray was probably the, the the first that was very prominent and and never really went into management. I Always remember there was I mean I can't remember if it was right, but there was a lot of chat at one point that it was either Everton or Villa had tried to make him the manager, um, and I think he was close, but then sort of backed out at the end. But um, yeah, things have moved on a, a great deal. Um, but for me, you know, it's the other thing is it's like you know, you venture off down a path and you're doing one thing to then segue across to being a manager or a coach. It's it's about you know what is it that you're you're giving up to then go into what level is it you're going into? You know, so it's not just a straight oh great going to be a manager. It's about you know what is it you're giving up? What is what is it you're sacrificing to go and do that? What level is it you're getting involved in? What's the longevity? What's the... You know, all those things that I've described again and again, about the balance. And, um, for me, there's aye, there's other things that uh, that float my boat and I'm interested in. And with what I'm doing, I can sort of do all those things that interest me without having to get involved in that. So are you waiting
0: for the big job of being coach of one of your kids' teams?
1: <laughs> That's a few years away, yeah. Um, I need, uh, need to wait a few years before they're at the, the stage where they're uh, getting involved and I get dragged along to, to be the manager. <laughs> yeah.
0: When you're watching the games for analysis on a Sunday night or whatever, and the game's absolutely terrible, how does that work? Do you not just think... Can we just cut this one?
1: <laughs> no, because then you've you've got to... I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure that there's been a lot of supporters that would say that there's not enough uh, analysis or attention given to their team anyway. But, I mean, the the structure is what it is, that you've got to give respect to to every club. You've got to, you know, analyse the, the game. And yeah, I'm doing it wrong, there are certain games that are... There's not a great deal to look at and analyse. But at no point do you ever just think, well oh, we're not gonna do anything. You've got to, you know, you've got to give respect to the to the whatever team it is, their support that you've you're, you're given some sort of analysis. But obviously when there's games that there isn't a great deal it's very, you know, it's just, it's, it's natural that you're not going to go into the same depth in that game as you may well with others that have got a lot more meat on the bones. But you're still doing something, whether it's simply just, you know, looking at the goal that was in the game or moments, you know, of 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 interest. Um, then there's always going to be something to look at in the game. Obviously, <clears throat> the bigger games then there might be, as I said, a bit more meat on the bones where you can actually delve into something that's a, a lot more sort of finely uh, or a lot more fine detail something that's a lot more analytical um, but, you know that fluctuates from week to week and game to game, it's not necessarily the same team, you know it's, could be you could be watching one of the bigger games and there's not a great deal happening whereas, you know, one of the perceived smaller games, there might be something that's pff, that was great, you know, loads to look at so, I, no, there's never a point where uh, we turn around I read, "Well, just just bin that." <laughs> no.
0: Would you take the big money loan move to match of the day too, or would you get completely bored of talking about VAR every week?
1: <laughs> it would take me too long to get up to speed with what's actually going on in the, in the league down south. That uh, you know, all my time is spent being on top of what's going on here. There's, uh, there's no big money loan moves happening anytime soon
0: <laughs> Ok we talked about the, the wider things going on in your life were you always a very political animal or is this something more and more on your consciousness in the last few years indeed since retiring from being a footballer
1: um, Well a bit of both of them, you know I think it's consciousness, awareness uh, you know they, they, they grow and and uh, intrigue just continues to, you know, become bigger and bigger the more you know, or certainly the more I know about something, the more I want to know about it. Um, so, was I always political? It's not as if I came from a political family, um, although <laughs> the family are all very political now. Um, I think that's pretty sort of... Uh, um, familiar story across the country after you know independence referendum in 2014 it engaged you know a lot of people And my my family were were a perfect example of that you know until then they weren't very political at all i was before then but um independence referendum you know politicized a, a whole swathes of the population for me i think i mean i don't know mean, Where does it come from? I don't know, is the honest answer. Moving away from home at such a young age, perhaps, gives you a different perspective of things. You look back um, from out with, and I've always been an inquisitive person, asking why, seeing my kids now, <laughs> see your own traits, why this, why that? And you're like, <laughs> just because. And I can think that, you know, being at school, questioning everything. But again, in a good way, you know wanting to know not questioning you know, like shut up you're an idiot no it's questioning you know why is this why are we doing that um and just uh you know a, a trying to quench that thirst for for knowledge and information and then the more i sort of delved in the more i'd want to know and i suppose uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm very conscious of like echo chambers and things like that as well. Where, you know, where you you have the, the the seed of a a thought, and then you just seek more and more validation of that, and all of a sudden that seed, you know, grows to be some sort of oak tree, and it's very difficult to get back to the source of it and say, well, was that the right thing? I'm I'm aware of that um, and conscious of it. But ultimately, I think you know I am an opinionated person as well. I recognise that, and I'm 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 very comfortable with you know the positions that that I hold, Um, and I try to validate them with reason. It's not as if I again, it's not as if I say these things for uh, effect or whatever I say because I believe in it. Um, And yeah, I probably get you know um, emotional about it or not in a sense of like getting upset about it but I'm saying it's an emotive thing as is sport I feel the same about you know Scotland and politics in, in general um, and yeah it's 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 something that probably you know if you was to put it on the spot does it come from I think perhaps just moving away from home at such a young age and being inquisitive and, and looking back and asking the questions of why why is why is it that uh, you know Scotland is what it is and 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 where it is where its place is in the world?
0: What about for you personally? Do you would you still like to go into politics or be remain an activist?
1: Um, well, that's the thing. You know, when you talk about the or when I'm talking about the itch of you know a lot of guys involved in football and and, and punditry and, and the itch with coaching, I would probably say that mine's is more with with politics. It's a bigger world out there than football. You know, we live in a very privileged bubble, but there is a bigger world out there and that would potentially probably be the the itch that I've got whether I ever do anything about it I don't know but you know it's the one that probably sort of is just bubbles under the surface um that I would potentially you know think about but I don't know it's the honest answer Um I don't know if I I would Um whereas with the, the management I don't ever see that happening but with with politics, potentially, possibly, maybe. I can't move on without asking about political
0: footballers. Were these matters, I don't imagine Scottish independence and English changing rooms of the 1990s and early 2000s, but were those matters ever discussed? Were elections discussed? Was there anything flying around? Maybe the feeling, them lot are going to tax me more, even
1: anything. Nah, no. Nah, I'm not, not conscious of or aware of that at all. Nah, it's... No, because ultimately as well you're, you're talking about extremely fine-tuned athletes that are that if you're all these things could potentially be described as distractions you know and maybe that's that was the you know the me. i was distracted with too many other things or one of the problems um so nah i can't I, I i really can't remember any sort of discussions about any of that stuff even if it was talking about you know they're going to tax you more than than somebody else. I, I don't even think the the well, the vast majority probably weren't aware, and the others it wasn't it wasn't a topic of discussion at
0: all. So you're telling me that Tony Murray never gave you a um, great socialist
1: speech <laughs> sending you off. <laughs> no, he said no, he didn't, I didn't. But you know the, the the funny thing is that if you look at a lot of the you know the these historically these top managers then. They will draw on, you know, their, their upbringings and experiences, and you know, there's a lot of them that come from uh, difficult backgrounds or hard upbringings, and socialist values of that collective, the cooperative. They, they recognise, you know, the, the importance of that. Um, so yeah, look, you know, I always do. I, I don't laugh, but I always have a sort of wry smile at times when people talk about keeping politics and football and sport, you know, separate. And I can understand to a certain extent what they're talking about is not to politicise everything, but equally you can't ignore it because politics runs through every fabric of society. It's intrinsically linked to everything. Politics is life. It impacts everyone. And I think the people that are in power actually want folk to not talk about it. That's ultimately... You know, people in power, whether it's politics, football, business, anything, they want an apathy amongst the People. Because then that means that they can do things with very little recourse. They don't want people to be, you know, actively aware and and uh, involved with what's going on. Um, And that's, you know, as I said, that goes right across every sort of sector.
0: Finally, then we've sat together now for over two hours, over a couple of sessions, and it seems clear to me that your love for football remains strong. What is it, therefore? you love about this game, whether it's the Scottish game or the sport itself, more widely?
1: That's a very good question. Um, what is that? Probably the fact that, you know, it's something that you've given so much of your life to. You know, you grow up kicking a ball out in the garden with, you know, big brother and my, and my dad and, um, and everything. You know, you can link your identity to that um, and then it just, off it goes. Your life takes a path and and it's involved and intertwined with football right throughout it. So, you know, it's probably that, that, you know, my life and football have been intrinsically linked right throughout. Um, And there's ups and downs, there's no doubt about it. But, um, you know, the the highs that you can experience within the game are are extremely, uh, extreme highs and very privileged highs but I've always had that awareness of it being slightly artificial and not not normal to the the vast majority of people out there but then the experiences that fans can get the highs that they can get I suppose that's where you can come together you know players and fans it's those moments that uh, that that sort of put some joy into people's lives and that's the you know that's the other thing that uh, you know I love about the game that it's something that is unique you know, it's a business but you can't really relate it to many other businesses in certain aspects because it's different um, and it's one of the difficulties of it because everybody, you know when you're playing has got a voice and an opinion and a view on it, it's now obviously what I make a living out of um, but it's that passion that everybody's got for the game why is it they've got it? That's a good question, I don't know I think maybe the same for a lot of fans. They've grown up. It's their identity, that connection a lot of folk will have with their dads, going to football, watching football, playing football, identity being wrapped and you know, in, in and around it all, and then the experiences that you have on that path.